Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. The United States is the only country in the world that has not ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child and the only country to sentence youth to life without parole. The United States is also the leader in the industrialised world in the number and percentage of incarcerated youth. It's an embarrassment. While the juvenile justice system was established as a non-criminal, non-adversarial, reformist approach to child offenders with the first juvenile court established in 1899 in Cook County, Illinois on this premise, the juvenile system is now largely punitive. The juvenile justice system reproduces and amplifies the problems of the criminal justice system, which excessively incarcerates for non-violent offences and leads to increased rates of recidivism. The juvenile justice system, however, has additional problems. Numerous states have established juvenile systems that lack the constitutional protections of their adult counterparts, including the right to have counsel appointed and have the case heard before a jury. The vast majority of juveniles are imprisoned for non-violent offences and children sit in jail for status offences or offences that are only offences because they are in minority. This includes drinking alcohol, having consensual sex, running away from home and truancy. Children are therefore sent for what are largely innocuous activities or actions that rather require the assistance of social services to detention facilities that are rife with physical and mental abuse, including the use of solitary confinement. This punitive approach is not only cruel, but fails to rehabilitate and serves no societal purpose. The juvenile system also reproduces and entrenches the inequalities and stratifications of our society and arguably criminalizes poverty. The system imposes a vast array of administrative fees and costs, sometimes even before the adjudication of an offense. And when families cannot pay, even when they can evidence their inability to do so, their children are put in detention facilities. More privileged families who can afford to pay their fees have the children diverted away from the system. The system is also plagued by an institutional racism with youth of colour more likely to be arrested, convicted and sentenced to detention for the very same actions committed by their white peers. The system is inherently flawed and radical changes need to be made or we will continue to see generations of children exposed to and then entangled within the criminal justice system. We need to refocus the primary purpose of the criminal justice system as rehabilitative, and this is particularly so in the case of juveniles. To discuss these issues and more, I spoke to Marsha Levick, the Deputy Director and Chief Counsel, as well as the co-founder of the Juvenile Law Centre. Founded in 1975, it is the oldest public interest law firm in the United States that is dedicated to pursuing and protecting children's rights through case law and advocacy. Welcome to Gravity, Marsha. Thank you. You recently released an in-depth report on the various costs and fees imposed by the different U.S. jurisdictions in the juvenile justice system, and I was horrified to uncover how many of these costs and fees were imposed and uh, also that they really had no penological purpose and the fact that impecunious youth are being incarcerated. May you please explicate uh the various costs and fees that are generally imposed upon youth and how this exacerbates economic inequality in our society? Sure. Um, what, what we have seen is that it's really common in juvenile court practice here for courts to impose various kinds of fees or charges associated with, for example, probation services. So if a child is on probation as a consequence of an adjudication of delinquency, 
they may well be charged some monthly rate for a portion. It could be a fraction. It could be a larger amount, but but for some portion of the probation charges uh, to, in effect, defray some of the costs of those probation services. We have seen instances where kids are actually charged a fee for receiving court-appointed counsel. So someone who is indigent, who is appointed counsel because they are recognized as being unable to pay for counsel themselves, may nevertheless be charged an administrative fee, $50, $150, in some instances a bit more, for the privilege of having counsel appointed for them. There are fines, obviously, that are sometimes associated with uh, an adjudication of delinquency, a, a conviction of a criminal act by a child. And as, in a sense, your question, I think, recognizes um, two things. Number one, that often these charges are not really aimed at addressing the underlying delinquent behavior. They don't really have a rehabilitative purpose. Um, They are really administrative charges, as I said, to essentially deflect costs or to defray costs, public costs. And secondly, that children are inherently indigent. Children do not, in almost every single instance that we can imagine, have independent financial means or resources of their own. The idea of creating a financial overlay to their involvement in the juvenile justice system that creates a cost system that they invariably cannot meet often sets them up for recommitment or reincarceration because of what is, as you described it, impecunious, simply children who do not have the means to meet their financial obligations and then are punished for it. And and this is in the face of empirical data that shows us that it is youth that are impecunious in the first place, that are neglected by society, you might say, that uh, are overrepresented in the juvenile system and then that do not have the ability to be diverted away from incarceration leading to recidivism. I mean, what could be the policy behind these I think the policy uh, probably stems from a misguided notion that assessing charge uh, charges that imposing some type of financial responsibility on an individual who is involved in the justice system may be a part of the deterrence or a part of the notion of teaching them a lesson, uh, perhaps teaching them about the consequences of their actions. The problem with that policy, of course, is that if you impose those kinds of charges and place those financial obligations on individuals who will never be able to meet them, it simply fails to serve any logical or legitimate penological purpose. Right. And and the reason we have a different juvenile system, I suppose, is that we recognize that juveniles uh, can be more easily rehabilitated if we gave them the chance. And also that for that they are not in the majority, we do not believe that they can uh, execute contracts or the majority of contracts, that they can uh, take alcohol, but they're f- but we do think that you know they, they should um, be sometimes charged as adults and so forth. I mean, it, it's, it's a bit of a disconnection there. I think that's a great way to describe it. It is a disconnection. It's a disconnection between policy 
and research and policy and outcome. The You're right that the juvenile justice system was created precisely to provide for a different form in which to adjudicate juvenile offending and to allow for kids who violate the criminal law to be spared the extreme consequences of having a criminal record and having a criminal conviction. And this history of imposing these fines and costs on kids and creating these ultimately unmeetable financial obligations uh, does not serve a purpose in the sense that it doesn't promote rehabilitation, it doesn't promote deterrence, and in many instances it backfires in the sense that by driving both children and their families who often get caught up in a secondary obligation to meet these financial obligations, uh, it simply increases the possibility that they are driven deeper into debt, uh, more marginalized, made to feel more desperate about their circumstances, and of course, risk the greater possibility of recidivism. Which doesn't help society at all. <laughs> Correct. Children. Not at all. It's, this is a very counterproductive measure uh, that we see across the country. But it seems that we do have some good news. Philadelphia has recently stopped child support fees, I believe, earlier this month. Alameda County has a moratorium on fees. Uh, Washington State recently enacted a law that eliminates a vast number of juvenile fees. And today, March 21, the California legislature is discussing Senate Bill 190, which aims to eliminate and reduce a number of fees. Now, is, are they sufficiently moving forward? What do we need as a proper policy to help children? Do we need to eliminate the, all fees? And can we do that? Uh, the answer to your first question is yes. We need to eliminate all fees. And that is certainly the goal of our work here at Juvenile Law Center. It's simply irrational. Uh, you know, when we sort of talk about the disconnect between policy and outcome and policy and goal, when you seek to obtain money from an individual that has none, that has no capacity to provide you with the sums that you seek, uh, it, it simply fails to serve any meaningful purpose. It doesn't benefit society. It harms that individual. We see no justification, actually, in the law uh, or in sort of the halls of policymakers to continue to impose fines and fees and costs on a population that is essentially indigent. So yes, we our goal within the next three to five years uh, is is to eliminate uh, these kinds of fines and costs across the country. I hope you succeed, and you have been making a great uh, pathway towards that, and I commend you for it. And so one other advocacy arm of the Juvenile Law Center is that, and actually I'll, I'll retract a bit, because I would wager that a lot of the general populace believes that one of the aspects of the juvenile system is that uh, the benefit that we give children is that even if they are convicted of, um, of a crime, they have their records expunged automatically when they reach the age of majority. Now, actually, this is not the case, correct, that, they, um, that, that sometimes it's a very convoluted process to get your records expunged, that it's not automatic, that it might require the assistance of counsel and you might have fees associated with it, which again brings, brings us back to the fact that uh, the, the impecunious 
youth are again subjected to an inequality and a restriction, whereas people that come from more privileged backgrounds uh, can uh, protect their past and move forward? Uh, yes, that's a great question and an important, um, I think, kind of segue to some of the other work that we're involved in. So it is a misconception, I think, across the country that if kids are involved in the juvenile justice system, they benefit from this purported confidentiality of that system and that their records are secret and that they are both not available to the general public and that they are expunged in ways that allow them to be spared uh, the consequences of having a criminal record as they go forward into their adult lives. That's not true. And the difficulties are precisely some that you have identified. It is often not automatic. It's almost never automatic. It is rarely, if ever, automatic for youth who have been convicted of a violent crime. And that violent crime could be a simple assault. It could be something that was the product of a schoolyard fight. But nevertheless, because it is characterized in a certain way, it may simply be off the list of an, a, of an offense that would be eligible to be expunged. There is always, in almost every instance, a fee associated with the actual administrative process of expunging a juvenile record, and often that requires counsel. And so you really have a number of obstacles that we place in front of kids. It's not simply the financial one, which of course we've talked about, but also the notion that they will, at some point after they've been involved with the juvenile court, sometimes it's three years, five years, maybe 10 years before a record can even be considered eligible for expungement, they then would have to go seek a lawyer. Uh, under circumstances where they're very far removed from that original circumstance and may well not know at all what the process is that they have to go through in order to have that record expunged. Um, so it's another area where we have endeavored to create the appearance of uh, a special uh, both court and a special opportunity to uh, to be spared these consequences of having a criminal record, but our systems, in fact, often make that impossible. There are a number of kids that never get a chance because they are taken from school, they're put in uh, in facilities that are known to have wardens and other inmates have assaulted, sometimes sexually assaulted and often uh, physically assaulted inmates. They're put in solitary confinement. You know, we're very social animals and, and uh, it, it has been shown that, that it's solitary confinement that actually causes the most mental damage and, and we do this to children. Is that correct? It's absolutely correct. Uh, we, right now, Juvenile Law Center is involved in litigation in Wisconsin involving two state-run juvenile correctional facilities where there is widespread use of solitary confinement. We have litigated this issue as well against the New Jersey juvenile justice system uh, a few years ago. And it is deeply disturbing that we, in 2017, continue to lock children up under circumstances which in any other setting outside of a correctional setting, we would all consider child abuse. If we knew that a neighbor was locking up their child, even in their furnished room for days and weeks on end or months on end, as we have seen in many circumstances, 
with no opportunity for real external engagement with their peers, with other individuals at all, with an opportunity for educational programming or any other kind of stimulation or stimulus, uh, we would not hesitate to call 911, to call our child abuse agencies and report that. And that's essentially what we are doing to children. And I think it is all the worse because it is the state that is doing it. It's terrible. And, and the fact that the that we're sending children to centers where we know, I mean, for instance, Ritkers, uh, there was the case of uh, Khalif Bowder. Uh, he was um, falsely accused of stealing a backpack. And I would say an extremely innocuous um, action. And he did not want to plead guilty guilty because he did not do it and later the charges were dropped, but he had to spend over a thousand days in Ritkes where we've had video evidence that he was physically assaulted by the guards and other inmates. He was put in solitary confinement for hundreds of days and when he was in the end not charged, uh, he uh, did not get over the uh, mental assault and committed suicide. I mean, when we listen to something like this, it, it is our policies, our institutions that have done this. How how is this something that in the 21st century, in a society that we say is one of the most developed in the world, do we allow this to happen? And how can we prevent this in the future? Well, I ask myself that question every day. <laughs> um, and as a lawyer, I'm grateful that I think I have some tools to address it. But it is shocking. There isn't any other way to think about it. And it's shocking on many levels. One, it's inherently cruel. And the case of Khalif Browder is one that I think makes everybody who hears his story sit up and wonder, how could that ever have happened? And of course, his story about the brutality that he experienced while in solitary and while at Rikers simply piles on uh, what I hope is a shame that we all feel in hearing what happened to him. And of course, uh, grief at the tragedy of him ultimately committing suicide once he was out of the facility. It's also completely, again, as you know, I think perhaps the theme of our conversations here may be the things we do to children in the name of rehabilitation that are not remotely connected to any sort of rehabilitative purpose or outcome. And putting kids in solitary will harm them. If kids who are placed in solitary have any kind of underlying uh, emotional issues or mental health issues, and many youth in the juvenile justice system do come into that system with mental health concerns, solitary confinement will exacerbate those problems. It will, it, it is a, an experience that children will carry with them. That's exactly, of course, what happened with Khalif Browder. Uh, it will stunt their developmental trajectory. It breaks down their educational progress. So often when kids are in solitary, they are not provided educational opportunities. And again, we know from research that these breaks in educational progress are often exceedingly difficult to overcome. So there's nothing positive that comes from the use of solitary confinement. Correctional officials, I suppose, would say, well, it allows us to manage behavior. But they're not managing behavior. Managing behavior is a timeout. It's if someone 
is aggressive, you give them an opportunity to calm down and then you bring them back into the general population. And unfortunately, it's often not even about that. It's often a rule infraction. Somebody breaks a rule in a facility that can be as trivial as walking the wrong way, looking the wrong way, saying something they shouldn't say, offending someone, insulting someone. And those kinds of disciplinary infractions in many instances, and certainly in Wisconsin, we've seen this end up with these youth receiving solitary confinement for just an incredibly trivial uh, infraction of a rule that is, again, really designed for the benefit of the facility and not for the benefit of these kids. And continuing forth with this uh, misconception that when we punish children, we're somehow rehabilitating them, serving no societal purpose, uh, one other arm of your advocacy is the expungement or the the ending of juvenile sex offender registration. If you could explain, because I think a lot of people think of extremely violent people and uh, sex offenses are, rape is the most violent thing that you can do, but I don't think people understand how uh, innocuous some actions by children who do not understand what they are doing can be to get them um, on uh, the registered sex offender list and how this impacts their lives. Uh, Exactly. And I think there are a number of misconceptions about juvenile sex offenders. And I think that the creation of sex offender registries and notification policies for both juveniles and adults is an example of a way in which our country has just gone completely awry, overreacted to particular circumstances or particular, particularly violent or notorious crimes and attempted to adopt a sort of one-size-fits-all rule uh, that, once again, is utterly disconnected from research and best practices. So in the case of juvenile sex offenders, there are two things that are I think it's important to know. One is that juveniles who, who engage in sexual offending conduct that is not driven by the same kinds of often predatory. And again, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but when we think about adult sex offenders and there's research to back this up, a lot of that conduct is predatory in nature for juveniles, similar kinds of conduct or innocuous sexual inter- sexual interaction or touching with a peer is not driven by predatory impulses Much of it is driven by uh, really the developmental stages that they are going through. While it may not in every instance be normal, psychologists would say it is normative for adolescents to engage in sexual exploration. And in some instances that may involve sexual conduct that is troubling, uh, that may be offensive, and in some instances may warrant some type of uh, process for holding them accountable. There are certainly teenagers who do engage in violent rape, and I don't mean to suggest that all juvenile sex offending is utterly innocuous. But that's not the point. The point is that because it is uh, really in almost every instance uh, not driven by this predatory uh, personality, it means that the the potential for reoffending is extremely, extremely rare among juveniles, juvenile sex offenders. The recidivism rate is, in a number of studies that have been done, uh, 
hovers in the range of two to five percent. So if you had a hundred juvenile sex offenders sitting in a room with you, you could be certain that probably 95 of them would never commit another offense. And that's that number is an indication, I think it really proves how overbroad our response to this conduct is. The other point is, it's not only that these kids don't reoffend, and so this idea of putting them on a registry is a pointless, but nevertheless scarring exercise because they then walk around with essentially a scarlet A on their foreheads, a uh, scarlet letter on their foreheads. There's also, um, it is completely at odds with the notion of the juvenile court being a court of second chances. And the juvenile court has always historically been viewed, even at its worst, as a court of second chances where juveniles could be held accountable for violating the criminal law as kids and have an opportunity to really come out the other side and become productive adults. When you place someone on a sex offender registry, whether they're public or private, they are accessible. The internet is extremely porous. Third parties can get a hold of this information and transmit it and share it with anyone they choose to without consequence. Community notification, of course, is an even more extreme version of this shaming where individuals can search databases and be affirmatively notified if a sex offender is in their neighborhood, and sometimes that includes juveniles. The Requirements for registering on a sex offender are shockingly onerous. Showing up four times a year in person, showing up within three days if certain key personal identifiable physical characteristics or aspects related to where you live or what car you drive or where you park your car or where you're in school, as those things change, having to report that information often within three days and the consequences for failure to report in many states lead to mandatory incarceration. So we have created a system that is draconian, that is not necessary because this is a population that is not in fact going to pose a risk to society and then creates enormous obstacles for these individuals when they do begin to transition to adulthood in terms of being able to get into higher education uh, opportunities to pursue employment opportunities, where they live, how they work, who they can associate with. It's really, it's quite a, it's a startling, shocking system that we have created with no research to support it as being uh, beneficial to either the individuals or to our communities. It seems that the system is geared towards creating a criminal class, you might say, of people that are cornered into repeated uh, offenses and incarceration. And this might benefit uh, certain people. In 2007, uh, you were pivotal in uncovering an ineffably egregious scheme in um, Pennsylvania, where two judges received $2.6 million for um, doing something so pernicious, they put kids in jail that were, I mean, some of your clients, they, they did absolutely nothing, really, and they were put into a system for these judges to receive money. And, um, and then when they were found, and now they're in 
uh, jail, you worked to have these kids' records expunged. Now, how many kids were involved? And if you could just explicate a little more on um, what happened here. Sure. Um, so we're talking about uh, what has now become known as the Kids for Cash scandal involving a corruption scheme uh, that unfolded in Lucerne County, Pennsylvania, which is in a, the northeastern corner of the state. And there were approximately 2,500 kids, individual kids, who appeared in juvenile court before this particular judge, Judge Chivarella, between 2003 and 2008. And that time period is the period during which the judges received uh, just about $2.9 million, um, mostly from the developer of the facilities and uh, in, in combination with the uh, former co-owner of uh, two of the private facilities that were built. And, uh, you know, I think that it was... Again, uh, shocking. I've used that word a few times. On many levels, the kids were largely incarcerated for being adolescents. Uh, it's a classic example of how we have criminalized adolescents in this country. Kids who got in uh, to trivial skirmishes at school, who pissed off someone in a position of authority, uh, the named plaintiff in the case, Hillary Transu, who simply created a parody on what was then MySpace, a uh, social media website of her vice principal. Uh, not threatening, not violent, uh, but just a, an adolescent parody that she and her peers thought was funny. Um, and... Uh, you know, they were, they were, many of them were incarcerated, many of them in these private facilities. And the, the case represents what happens when really every part of the juvenile justice system breaks down. The judges were at the center of it. And there were two judges involved who are both now serving prison terms in, in the federal prison system, uh, one for 17 years and one for 28 years. And uh, they have obviously paid a steep price for their involvement. But there were other stakeholders in the system, district attorneys and public defenders, who were well aware that children were being railroaded. They may not have known about the financial incentives at play, but they were well aware the kids were appearing in court day in and day out without counsel, without the benefits of all of the due process safeguards that we consider sacred in our justice proceedings, uh, and never spoke up. So um, I think it is, I think it was then, I think it has been a stain on Pennsylvania, but we also know that the, the ability, the ease with which the juvenile justice system, because it operates largely in secret, can continue to deny kids fundamental rights is something that we know continues to go on in many jurisdictions around the country. Now, you spoke of um, Hillary, the MySpace profile. I mean, one might say that that's just her exercise of First Amendment rights, and yet she was incarcerated for it. And many times it seems that kids are being denied constitutional rights. That's that's right. Um, and I think that what happened is that, as I said, I've sort of used this term, this criminalization of adolescence. We have tolerated the... The, the ease um, and permitted the ease with which law enforcement and school administrators and then ultimately juvenile court judges and prosecutors 
can look at conduct that kids engage in really because they are adolescents, because they are testing limits, because they are uh, taking risks, uh, not foreseeing consequences that they will see when they grow up, uh, and turning that into a an excuse for bringing them into the juvenile court. And what we saw in Luzerne County, particularly, you know, very vividly, I think, with Judge Chivarella directly, was this unfortunate view that his intervention was in the best interests of these kids and that he was going to make them better. He was going to provide a form of discipline that they would learn their lesson, uh, but doing it all through what was ultimately a punitive response, removing these kids from their homes as teenagers. Hillary was 15 when she was first incarcerated. Fortunately, she was only in placement for about a month um, before we were able to get her out of the facility. But there were many kids involved in the Luzerne County scandal who spent years cycling in and out of confinement in Luzerne County because the judge was able to bring them back on probation violations and send them back into the system, uh, in many instances with great cost to them in terms of their own emotional well-being and uh, their ability to uh, ultimately put that era behind them, to put those experiences behind them. And I want to talk about uh, Romeo and Juliet laws. We need to protect juveniles against um, adult predatory sexual um, conduct. And even if they would say that it's consensual, but when we have two juveniles and when we're faced with situations where, for instance, kids can sext pictures of each other, I mean, are they then engaging in child pornography and should they really be penalised? Um, for that because they're, I guess, under the law, the victim and the, the criminal? And, and how does this benefit society to have laws that are meant to protect juveniles that end up actually uh, punishing them? I think this is really a quandary that we are still struggling to find a way to address. There have been many prosecutions in the last probably four or five years of teenagers and kids for sexting. And it is, in many of these instances, it is extremely difficult to figure out who is the victim and who is the perpetrator. There are some stories, certainly, where you have had um, almost a kind of revenge porn at the sort of adolescent level where you may have a former boyfriend who's pissed off and circulates a photo that was shared consensually and intimately with just one other individual who then may spread that photo and share that photo uh, through other social media sites, it can be quite harmful to the original sender. And we recognize that. But the vast majorities of these cases, uh, they represent and involve consensual conduct, the Romeo and Juliet kind of uh, scenario, which has been used to describe essentially consensual sexual activity between teenagers uh, who are choosing to engage in this conduct, perhaps misguided uh, as a parent. Uh, perhaps you don't want your child to be doing that at that age, uh, but it is not violent. It is not uh, an assaultive behavior. It is not without consent in the sense that consent can be given. And the whole issue of consent, of course, complicates these cases because often the individual who is prosecuted is, as you've suggested, also in the protected class, that these statutes were really created 
to protect children from adult predatory sexual behavior. Uh, and that's not what we see in much of the prosecution of cases involving sexual conduct and sexual activity between teenagers. Um, they may be two, three, four years apart, but there is still that notion that they're all in the protected class. And so again, I mean, I think as in we've seen in the sex offender registration statutes, um, it, it's really coming down on conduct with a very blunt instrument. Uh, you know, the old saying that if every problem looks like a nail, you know, uh, if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Um, if the only tool you have is incarceration then uh, and prosecution, then you just treat everything the same way. And that's uh, a hugely misguided policy position for our justice system to take and for our uh, law enforcement system to take. Because again, it simply ends up harming the kids involved uh, much beyond the conduct itself and sets up obstacles and barriers for these kids to move forward productively in their lives. I agree. And I do want to discuss alternative strategies uh, that rehabilitate kids in a better for society. But before uh, we go on to that, I do want to discuss the fact that the US continues to be the only country in the world that will sentence minors to life without parole. Uh, and uh, until 2005, of course, uh, the US uh, provided death sentences to minors. Now, you submitted amicus briefs in Miller versus Alabama and Graham versus Florida, two Supreme Court cases that restricted this practice but did not entirely prohibit the practice. If you could explain the facts of the case and the status of the law of providing minors life with no parole or an effective sentence if they have enhancements, um, say they get 110 years or something, which is effectively life without parole. And um, whether this is wrong, I mean, this seems to be a violation of the Eighth Amendment. So we here at Juvenile Law Center, we have been uh, really centrally involved in uh, several sentencing cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Roper, which prohibited the death penalty, and then the Graham and Miller cases, and ultimately Montgomery, uh, which dealt with life without parole, both in non-homicide cases and then in homicide cases. And it is perplexing, certainly to us as advocates, that we remain as punitive as we are, not only with respect to adults, but most especially, of course, with regard to children who commit crimes and are convicted of crimes under the age of 18. The, the status now, and I think that the sentencing arena for juveniles is arguably one of the most dynamic right now in the sense that I think there is an enormous amount of litigation underway and we will, I believe, continue to see refinements of how we, of sort of the, the borders and boundaries of permissible sentencing under the Eighth Amendment for kids. I will make a prediction about where I think we'll end up, but I think we're going to continue to see chipping away. Um, you know, Graham uh, was a particularly poignant case in the sense that Terrence Graham was someone who was convicted of uh, home invasion robbery, uh, is certainly considered to be a crime of violence uh, involving personal injury. Uh, he was placed on probation for that conviction. It was his first offense as an adult. He was 16 years old at the time. While he was on probation, he was suspected of being involved in subsequent other home invasion robberies. He was not charged with those crimes, but rather his probation officer 
chose to violate his probation. And he ultimately was found to have violated his probation, not to have committed a new crime. And his sentencing judge, believing that he had been given a chance and was undeserving of another one, sentenced him to life without parole. And the U.S. Supreme Court in 2010 ruled that that sentence was unconstitutional for anyone who was convicted of a non-homicide crime, who was a juvenile under the age of 18. Um, that ruling was followed in 2012 by Miller versus Alabama and the case of uh, Jackson versus Ar uh, Arkansas. And uh, Miller and Jackson were both individuals who were convicted of first-degree homicide, although Jackson was not directly involved in the killing. He was really convicted in a, as a felony murder, sort of accomplice liability. But nevertheless, both Miller and Jackson received mandatory life without parole sentences under the respective sentencing statutes of Alabama and Arkansas. And when the case got to the U.S. Supreme Court, the U.S. was indeed the only country in the world uh, in 2012 that formally permitted for juveniles uh, to be sentenced to life without parole in homicide cases. The Supreme Court uh, did not ban the practice, as you mentioned, but rather banned mandatory sentences of life without parole. And as a consequence, we, five years later, are litigating a whole array of issues that come out of the Miller decision. Uh, number one, you know, the notion of what is a life without parole sentence in California in the Gutierrez case, uh, if you received a 110-year sentence, was that a violation of the ban on life without parole? The California Supreme Court, I'm sorry, it was the Caballero case, not Gutierrez. Um, in the Caballero case, the, Supreme, the California Supreme Court said, yes, that was a violation of Graham. Uh, Caballero had not been convicted of a homicide crime, but rather an assault crime, and they struck that sentence. There is litigation going on around the country involving sentences anywhere from 35 years up through 50, 70, 90 in Missouri, there is a, an individual serving a sentence that is a accumulation of sentences that is over 200 years. Um, many of us would hear that and say, well, that's obviously a life without parole sentence. That individual will die in prison. There are courts that have said life without parole means life without parole, and a sentence that is a term of years is not on its face a life without parole sentence, and the Supreme Court cases don't apply. There are courts that have said if the sentence is a consequence of three homicides uh, or even three non-homicide crimes that result in consecutive sentences of 30 years, for example, that's not a violation of Graham or of Miller. Uh, so there is the, the sorting out of precisely what the Supreme Court rulings in Miller and in Graham mean uh, has occupied much of our time here at Juvenile Law Center uh, in trying to ascertain the precise boundaries of those rulings. But uh, it really raises a much deeper question, and I think that's where you were going. The U.S. is an extraordinarily punitive country. We house the largest percentage of inmates in, in the world. 25% of the incarcerated population in the world is here in the United States. Um, and the underlying principles of revenge and retribution that support our lust for incarceration 
infects every aspect of our justice system. And it has subjected, for that reason, uh, hundreds, tens of thousands of kids to extremely harsh, mandatory adult sentencing practices, including life without parole and very severe and extreme term of year sentences because of the enhancements that many states allow for. Uh, I, you know, I said to you earlier uh, in our conversation that I think within three to five years we can get rid of fines and fees in the juvenile system. I can't make that prediction here around sentencing of kids and how we sentence children in this country. Uh, I think it will take not only litigation, and we continue to litigate and we'll have some success in our litigation, uh, but I think it will take really a kind of culture change, maybe a generational change of understanding that there's no upside to extreme sentencing for kids. Uh, they may be off the streets for the time that they're incarcerated, but research demonstrates that the vast majority of juvenile offenders uh, in any category of crime will almost naturally desist from participating in criminal activity by their mid-20s. Uh, it, it is the very rare and uncommon, the language that the Supreme Court used in Miller and in Montgomery, the very rare and uncommon juvenile who is really a persistent offender who will not benefit from rehabilitation and will likely recidivate if they were to be released. Very rare and unusual offender. So we're locking up uh, generations of individuals, condemning them to die in prison with uh, losing, having them lose the opportunity and having us as society lose the benefit of what they could actually contribute to our communities if they were allowed to return to those communities. It's absolutely tragic and uh, you do wonder whether it is um, an intention to perpetuate a criminal class, um, maybe for a cheap labor force in prison, uh, because they're not protected in prison. Uh, they're not covered by the employment laws. And also, it's that law and order drum that politicians like to beat, and they propel this fear in the community. Let me just say, like, sort of oh, two yeah. quick things to your comments there. One is that um, you know, in talking about sort of perpetuating a criminal class or what we're really doing is marginalizing uh, a large segment of our population is to never forget that these are largely individuals of color. And they are, for the most part, the majority of individuals who are swept into this system that punishes and uh, incarcerates and indeed, in many instances, they're not only not covered by our employment laws, the 13th Amendment itself uh, really exempts uh, criminals from the protections of the anti-slavery provisions of the 13th Amendment. Uh, so there is a lot of prison labor that goes on, uh, poorly paid or unpaid. But again, it is uh, really it is the fact that we cannot ignore that these are largely individuals of color who are being affected by this. And I think as well, uh, again, this sort of disconnect between fact and policy, crime has been dropping consistently for since 1994, so for almost the last 25 years. And yet today we have politicians uh, talking about a rise in crime to feed yet another uh, kind of influx of dollars and resources to combat something that actually is not a problem.
in order to get easy votes, some might yeah. say, um, and misguided votes. In your report, you did uh, reference um, another criminal criminology report on sentencing that um, did show how disproportionate uh, the sentencing was uh, for convictions and for um, the, the length of sentences and the the lack of diversion from the detention system for youth of colour. Uh, they're more likely to be arrested. They're more likely to be incarcerated. Uh, it, it's um, quite tragic. And, and also, uh, I wonder if you could explicate um, a little more that... Um, <laughs> Even when these costs and fees, for instance, or, or division is not mandated by the system, that the officers are willingly imposing these fees, is there an inherent racial prejudice that is uh, the driving force here? Well, there's lots that's been written about that. <laughs> and yeah. um, many uh, who have spoken about it and debated it. I think that increasingly there is a feeling that there is really a structural racism in our society. Uh, so it's not so much about looking for examples or instances of implicit or explicit bias, but the system itself is simply uh, designed, uh, it appears, to promote the kinds of racial disparities that have pervaded this country, of course, for a couple of centuries. And we, it, it, it takes attention, but it also takes, in many instances, a redesign of that system to obliterate those kinds of racial disparities that we see. Uh, when you have discretion in the system, when you have the opportunity for the imposition of lengthy sentences, for myriad ways in which to impose penalties as you said, if it's a financial penalty, it may seem more innocuous because you're not locking that person up. But the reality is that when you impose those financial penalties on people who are impoverished, they will inevitably return to the system. And it is when you are operating a system that pulls people of color into that system who are often economically disadvantaged and continue to perpetuate the imposition of penalties and responses that play out particularly harshly for those individuals, the system is broken. Mm. And, and so unless, unless we change some of the very fundamental ways in which we operate our justice system, uh, I think we will continue to see these kinds of disparities. Right, and we'll do it two ways, through advocacy and through the courts. Now, um, just... Uh my last specific question before we move on um, to just a, a general question on the justice system um, with respect to moving forward, uh, we have to draw, if we're going to have a juvenile system, we have to draw a line somewhere, right? We, you know, whether you turn 16 or 18, you're no more mature on your the very day of your 18th birthday than you are on the last day um, that you are 17. However, we do have to draw these lines, um, and, and they are somewhat always arbitrary. However, uh, there are juveniles that are definitely <laughs> within the, um, the age range of being juveniles, and uh, they have been prosecuted as adults. You submitted an amicus brief in a successful action in Nevada where, uh, where juveniles, 
that didn't want to self-incriminate. So they had the Fifth Amendment on their side, and yet Nevada had a law that um, was ultimately found unconstitutional, but that juveniles had to give up their Fifth Amendment right to um, be prosecuted as juveniles, otherwise they'd be transferred to the adult system. And I believe that other states did the same with uh, giving up the right to counsel and, or in the Seventh Amendment giving up the right to juries. Now, <laughs> I mean, this just seems uh, quite preposterous. What is the, um, the, the system in place now uh, for uh, transferring juveniles to the adult system and what needs to change there in order to uh, really affect what the juvenile system is meant to be there for, and that is to provide juveniles with a different and more rehabilitative system. The system right now for trying kids as adult is adults is really a patchwork, meaning that across the 50 states, we have 50 juvenile court systems, 50 criminal court systems. These are our justice systems are, for the most part, creations and creatures of state law. And because of the legitimate rise in violent crime among both juveniles and adults in the late 80s and early 90s, up really prior to 1994 when crime started dropping, we had legislatures across all 50 states make it easier to prosecute juveniles as adults. And the patchwork comes in because what we have are a variety of schemes that make that process easier. One scheme is simply for the legislator, legislature to carve out particular classes of juveniles. So juveniles who are of a certain age and older, so 14 and older, 12 and older, 15 and older, who within that age group have been charged with a particular crime, in most instances, violent felonies, uh, may automatically be prosecuted as adults and simply excluded from the juvenile justice system in that jurisdiction. There may be some instances where that juvenile may have the opportunity to ask the criminal court, once they have been arrested and charged in the criminal court, to send the case back to juvenile court. There are a number of states around the country that allow prosecutors to make that decision themselves to decide whether one individual versus another individual juvenile offender should be tried in juvenile court or adult court, even though they may be charged with the same crime. In almost every instance, that prosecutor decision is unreviewable by any judge, either the criminal court judge, juvenile court judge, or any appellate court. We have other situations where the juvenile may indeed have a hearing in juvenile court and the judge will make the decision himself or herself about whether or not that child should be tried as an adult. I think this is another area where uh, I would call it dynamic rather than static, as I describe the sentencing area, where I think through litigation and policy advocacy at the state level, we will begin to probably see changes. And I think we will begin to chip away at some of the harshest policies providing for the prosecution of kids as adults. I think the ones that uh, we certainly have our eyes on uh, are the legislative exclusion, or sometimes we call it direct file, meaning that just children of a certain age charged with a particular category of offense will automatically be tried as adults with no review or prosecutorial discretion, uh, where the prosecutor makes that decision, again, with no opportunity for review. The reason why we're looking at that those categories of transfer are that we think that given the U.S. Supreme Court Eighth Amendment rulings in the sentencing cases, which really stressed the importance of individual decision-making because of 
the very distinct developmental qualities and attributes of teenagers and children and adolescents, that this willingness to tolerate a one-size-fits-all, again, scheme of transfer for children that doesn't allow for any discretion, that doesn't allow for any individualized scrutiny or decision-making, probably today misses the mark in terms of what our Constitution requires when dealing with children in the justice system. So I think that the whole area of transfer, uh, you know, we have a couple hundred thousand kids in this country tried as adults every year. Uh, I think that is one where we... I think we will see some rollback of those policies. There has been some successful advocacy at the state level where uh, some states have provided more discretion, have shrunk the class of individuals who could be subject to transfer. Uh, And I think we'll see, ultimately, over time, I think we'll see some success in the courts as well. Oh, I hope so. I want to end with a question that uh, focuses on alternative uh, strategies rather than incarceration and detention of youth and your opinion as to what is necessary on a policy level to really uh, treat juveniles um, with the aim of uh, rehabilitating them as a primary purpose rather than uh, punitive strategies. Well, again, uh, you know, it's the disconnect between policy and research. And there is research that confirms that children do better in their communities, do better at home, that longer periods of incarceration, in fact, have graver consequences for kids, not more beneficial consequences. And graver consequences for kids, of course, means worse consequences for their communities and for our society. So, uh, you know, the directions that we are seeing now, uh, in certainly in the juvenile justice system, in terms of progressive policies, is shuttering facilities. Uh, you know, New York State closed 21 juvenile justice facilities in the last five years, which is just an extraordinary accomplishment. Incarceration shrunk by around 50% in New York. We've seen similar double-digit reductions in juvenile incarceration really across the country uh, in very dramatic uh, results and uh, with no increase in crime and no greater risk to public safety. So I think that the the direction that uh, we're, we're watching unfold in juvenile justice and that I think we'll continue to see is one toward diversion, uh, toward both shrinking the population of juveniles who come before the juvenile court and reduced incarceration, which is really shrinking uh, the population that is even eligible for incarceration. Hopefully, greater access to expungement, uh, greater availability of expungement of juvenile records, and uh, other kinds of policies that really pave the way for for true second chance for kids to. Uh, be brought before the juvenile justice system when they engage in conduct for which they need to be held accountable and responsible, but also recognizing that uh, that is then not the last stop for them, uh, and that uh, with programs focused on rehabilitation and education and mental health services and addressing needs rather than uh, imposing consequences will benefit everybody involved. I agree, and I I hope 
that happens uh, sooner rather than later. Well, thank you very much for your time, Marsha, and for your important work in this area. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for being interested in the work that we do and in these issues. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.